and welcome. You are listening to The Philosophists, a pair of software guys, but we won't be doing that all our lives. Now, one day we leave that all behind to take our place amongst the league of professional philosophers, but today we'll sell for injecting a little bit of philosophy into your day. In this week's episode, you'll hear us talking about cockroaches, not too much though, ethical models, in particular utilitarianism and deontology, We'll also be talking about action versus inaction, and maybe what that means for ethics. My name is Declan McGrath, seeking a suitably ethical rock to crawl under. And my name is Simon Robertson, playing by the rules until I found out I've broken them. Okay, let's get philosophistical. Oh, and one other thing. This is part one of a mini-series introducing the basic ethical systems, and it will be somewhat foundational for other themes we talk about in the future. One piece of bad news is that you won't be getting an epilogue today. We'll do that to tie everything together at the end of the mini-series, so forgive the Irish goodbye at the end of this episode. And if you don't know what an Irish goodbye is, it's the first note going in our show notes. Now, we need one more ding to get going. And... So the theme of today's conversation really is, is how to get beyond cockroach ethics. I guess a cockroach is a classic symbol of a survivor, or so we've been told. Even in a nuclear war or a radiation bomb, it can't be stopped. And uh, many of us kind of go through our day maybe just surviving. When we make decisions, we're just thinking about how can I, how can I get to the end of this, this immediate thing in front of me? And the question is really, how do we stop drifting through life on autopilot and consciously make good decisions or, or try to? And I think out of the, the previous episode we did, we got lots of, of feedback. One of the questions that did come back was, well, you're telling us that we should do something good and in the direction of good, but you're not really telling us how we should do something good. So that's kind of what we look to tackle today. And maybe a good way into this is to outline some of the basic theories um, in, in ethics, taking a kind of a simple view of them, uh, just detailing them and probably throwing in a healthy dose of opinion along the way. So I don't know what you think of the claim that we, in many cases, drift through life on autopilot. Yeah, so I do agree. I think we do drift, or it's quite easy to drift through things and uh, not really think too much about the reason why we do the things we do and justify it to ourselves. I think with ethics and like in philosophy, uh, I feel that there's a very sharp distinction between like real world things and kind of justifying it in a kind of logical theory way. Because I think that when when you go through life generally, I think most people would say that when they're, if they do think about what they're doing or the reasons, they would kind of come down to some kind of guts instinct. They would just intuitively feel that, that might be right or wrong. And I think that's that can impact what kind of reasoning you kind of lean towards later on if you do try and kind of figure out a framework for it. And like an easy example would be if you believe in God, that might lean you one way into what your model of, of theory and figuring out what's right and wrong would be. But yeah, you know, I think it's important that people do think about what's what's right and wrong and how they kind of figure that out for themselves because it's it can be dangerous just to go along on autopilot and end up doing something which you haven't really thought through. Yeah, definitely. Like, have you ever kind of walked down the street and then gone, "Gosh, have I done anything good there in my last three decisions?" <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not to that extent, but yeah, I've definitely thought about have I done good, have I got done something good today, something that I'd be proud of. And sometimes it's like, well, can't really remember what I did. I walked the dogs. That's why that always feels like a win, like a good thing to do. But maybe that's for a different reason. Yeah, no, it's funny. I like I, I remember a time where I was just 
maybe if you're, if you're kind of working hard, things like that. And, you know, whatever you get caught up in life. And, and sometimes you kind of have to make cynical decisions in, in different things you do, maybe a bit of self-interest and that. And I remember just like walking along one day, um, coming home and going, God, do you know what? Like, I remember when I was a lot younger, maybe, and, and less cynical about things, it would be kind of nice to get back to, to some of that. Um, and I think you kind of need to, I don't know, sometimes it's probably good to tap into that, that kind of ideal and it makes life a bit easier when... It can also be very stressful though. Like if you have, it's easy when there, there's like everyday decisions that are kind of commonplace and you can kind of go on autopilot and you can do things just by repetition. You've learned what to do basically. But there are some times when you, you have to make a choice and there is no good choice. There's lots of examples where people are choosing between two, I don't want to say two evils, but two two decisions, which there's no clear right answer. I think that's when it's really important to have something to at least fall back on that you've thought of. For example, something that's like, like closer to home for me with my wife being a doctor is like there's lots of medical decisions that are made and it's not clear that, oh, this is the right decision. And you're impacting people's well-being. I can understand that in day-to-day life, just going through, you might not be thinking of things. I think you should. But there's definitely cases when you come across something you've not come across before. I think it's really important then to think about it and actually try and work out what the right choice is. And I guess that's what we're going to try and discuss. So how would you do it? How would you how would you try and work out what the right thing to do is? Um, it's a good question. I think there's kind of gut instinct, like you said, and we'd probably come to that one almost last, maybe in the list of things we'll go through. If we do a little whirlwind whistle stop tour of the common theory, so what we'll probably talk about is is three theories in particular. The first one uh, is the nice place to start is utilitarianism, and what is that? The second one maybe is is a thing called deontology, which is which is kind of um the word puts me off the whole idea of even thinking about ethics. It's it's such a technical word, but it kind of breaks out to kind of rules. A rule-based system. So I wouldn't let the words make you press the stop button right now if you're if you're listening to this. And the last one then is is uh, virtue ethics, which kind of does get a little bit back to that kind of instinctive or character or personality way of approaching problems. So if we went with utilitarianism first, and there's a few variants, but it's been kicking around for I don't know one or two hundred years. Are you a fan of utilitarianism? Before we say what it is, I think as a, as a theory, like I think it has a lot going for it. At least when you first look at it, it's it's the one that kind of you would think makes the most sense. I think as you as you go into it and you think about it more and more, like problems do arise and you can get kind of all sorts of dilemmas that you might want to consider or it leads to uncomfortable conclusions potentially. But I think as a as an initial starting point, I think that's the one where most people would kind of either end up with or lean towards all other factors being equal, I think. Yeah, so I'll make a stab at seeing seeing if I can describe the thing. So Utilitarianism overall, if you take a group and let's say there's a population of 100 people in that group, utilitarianism, I think it's fair to say, would be, well, overall, what is maximizes the total happiness or well-being or whatever your metric is of the group? Is that a fair starting point or is that too crude? No, I think that's, that's a, good, a good place to start. It's, you know, your, your choices should be the greatest good for the greatest number, that kind of uh, interpretation. Yeah. So there's, there's probably different ways to look at that. You, you can get different results, I think, if you look at average happiness across the group for each person versus total happiness. And there's lots of different ways you can kind of get caught up. But I suppose the key thing is like it doesn't really say thou shalt do this. It doesn't write anything down in terms of explicit rules, not in the classic sense. It's really you can have a kind of a hedonistic calculation, as they call it, based on hedonism. In other words, pleasure, if you want to call it that. 
minus suffering, whatever that answer might come out, we could take a scale of zero to 100 and say, well, you, you know, you might come out at a 30. Um, and then we tot up all the, thir- you know, all the numbers for the group. You're a 30, you're a 20, you're, 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 you're a 60. Lucky you. And that then, when you add it all up, that is you know, what you're aiming for. You're aiming to optimize that as the biggest number. And it seems to kind of make sense because it does kind of capture, even if we can't say exactly what that number should be, we can kind of have a sense, in principle at least, of, of where we're going with that. There are downsides to utilitarianism, though. And some people are viciously opposed to the whole idea of utilitarianism and think it's basically evil. Yeah, I mean, there's the, the, the example that really put me off was just the idea of the torture. If you have a group of 30 people and 29 of them really, 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 really enjoy torturing and one person doesn't, there's an argument to be made that, oh, well, to get the greatest like benefit or enjoyment for that group is that 29 people torture the one person who doesn't enjoy torturing people. That's just an uncomfortable conclusion. And that's obviously like a, like the quick extreme example to try and show you that it's that there is a problem. But you can kind of, you know, you can increment that slowly to bring it down to real world situations when, you know, the, it kind of seems like the numbers add up that everyone's better off. But it's kind of you're singling out one person in some way or one group or one subset and making their life potentially like significantly more problematic or miserable. The other problem I actually personally kind of struggle with when when discussing it is how you kind of measure the impact beyond your immediate group. So, for example, if I'm talking to you and I could talk to you about I was thinking of buying you a present, what present should I buy you? And we have a conversation. I end up buying you a computer. I don't know why I said a computer, but you wanted a computer. I bought you a computer. But that action has loads of other impacts on other groups not immediately present in that decision. And it's almost unknowable what that impact could be as well. So I've always found that an uncomfortable part of utilitarianism of like when you're discussing a decision, where do you draw the boundary of what group you're considering for that decision? I'm not sure if I've made that clear particularly, but it's, you know, you can, you can do an action which involves only you and say your family. But by purchasing a certain product, that product might be produced by a company who are unethical. And you suddenly sort of snowball into this, this problem of you're affecting negatively other people in a larger group and not your kind of immediate group. Yeah. So the, t- the two things there, the last one is the, just the things you can't calculate, the, all, the other, all the other follow-on consequences, which is kind of a knowledge problem. You just can't. It's too hard to calculate. There's a calculus here. And the problem before that was, if in your example, 30 people let's say the first 29 of them are, are their happiness value from zero to 100 based on torturing this one other person who's singled out is floating around like 80, 90. And obviously the person getting tortured, we can put them at a zero if we want. And it seems unfair that they're getting shafted. I think that one is the one that gets people more. It, it, like The other one is a failure of calculation. I think that that moral core of the first one seems to be a problem. It's almost like the problem is there's no way to set a limit on okay, torture is wrong. And just setting a grounding there, a kind of a threshold to stop um, that happening. So maybe what we'll do is we'll look then at what the solution to that is. So if the problem with utilitarianism is that you're just shafting someone, for want of a better word, then if we go on to the second model, deontology, that will try to solve this issue by putting rules in. There's more to say than just this, but for example, you could have a rule that torture is wrong as a rule. 
And that just sets a floor on the problem. So even if 29 people are very happy about the torturing of that one person, the one person has a, a right. It does lead itself very much to rights frameworks and, and civil rights and people's rights that that we're going to say that torture is wrong. And that means that even if the other 29 people like the idea of that, the one person in that model says, no, the rule here is no torture. Sorry, guys. Now I come up from zero and you're going to have to just accept the fact that we're down from, for each of you down to much lower value. So we could have a number for the overall group that's much lower, but we do have, you know, poor Timmy here defended who would otherwise be um, in a bit of a predicament. So that kind of system Kant has always cited as a big influence in that. Um, as the great MC Hammer said, can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. So, uh, <laughs> wow. so uh, yeah, it gets worse. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's good. Yep. That's what we waited all week for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so Kant would have basically said that people are ends in themselves, not a means. In other words, when you look at someone and deal with someone, they're not just like a way of you getting what you want. They, they are something that is to be respected. So um, Immanuel Kant's name is pretty much synonymous with, with deontology. And I think the thing there is, I suppose, what's the problem of that? What's the problem of putting in rules? And I know we haven't said everything yet about what deontology is, so if, if I've missed anything. Well, I mean, it's interesting you went for Kant. So whenever I think of deontology, I kind of think more divine command theory, which is kind of a religious text, say God gives you 10 commandments, these are the rules, and you know they're kind of absolute. So I personally kind of, that's my first go-to for deontology, in my head at least. It's like, it's a very rule-based system, and it's not even derived from anything that you could kind of think of in some respects. It's, it's, it's handed down, obviously, like, here are just rules to follow. So I mean, Kant also has the rule generation and not treating people as a means to an end, you know, the, the ends in themselves. That's the, the way I think about it is, is more like, oh, just the rules that have been handed to you on how to lead your life. You know, solve some of the problems with, with the utilitarian problems where you can have these very uncomfortable situations where you can justify very unpleasant things. And it's also very difficult to argue in some respects if you've got a good set of rules. So, yeah, if you say something like, oh, murder is wrong, uh, that seems to be pretty robust as a rule. I think if you ask most people, they would say murder is wrong. And same with torture. I think mean, you could probably say torture is wrong. You'd have to obviously get start getting to like definitions and, and bits and pieces. But I think it's a simple theory initially that, again, it, it feels like it has a lot of, of weight to it. Like it feels like, yeah, that would make sense. You, know, you have these rules that tells you what's right and wrong. It also would kind of give you a get out in some respects if if you were uncomfortable with the decision. Because like you can defer the blame. Yeah, you know, if you have that in intuitively thinking like, oh, I don't think this is right, but that's the rule. You can kind of get out of the problems that way. But I mean, I'm sure there are problems with uh, deontology as well. So, what, what do you think? I suppose first on the the religion one's interesting because I do go to the Kant way. Probably that's the way I learned this, and never really think about the religion one as much. But I think it's interesting to contrast the two just briefly before we dive into the the rules themselves. The the religion religious rules, whatever the religion is, are handed down and they're built up over just traditions, often so long that some in some cases people don't know why the rules are actually there. Other cases there's a narrative as to why they're there, but the the rules are handed down. And how the rules are generated, you just have to put your, your faith in, in the historic way that they were arrived at. With something like Kant's rules, he was coming out at the time of the Enlightenment. That's where that kind of when he used to kind of run around his village and 
and do things. He was kind of an interesting guy. I think he used to go for walks and people used to set their clock basically to count going for his walk. He probably would have liked lockdown. I don't think he ever left his village or anything like that. So he probably had a rule not to leave the village. Maybe maybe that was one rule he should have left out. But Kant did try to arrive at these rules using a set of principles based on the Enlightenment, is my understanding. He was saying that rationally, through thinking and through being logical and taking, I suppose, the principles of, of science, or also philosophy, that you could generate a system, a right answer, just by thinking about what is rational. So he was big into rationality. I think he really thought you could come at an objective answer, which we haven't talked about much yet, objective versus subjective. But basically, independently of who made the rules, Kant believed that the right answer in the rules, I think, emerged from logic itself and, and being rational. So he, he did feel like he had a very, very solid system. So I don't know if there's anything you want to say about that before we move on to the murder bit, but I'm happy to hold off the murder in case I've gotten anything wrong in, in your estimation there. Uh, no, I think that's a pretty good summary. I mean, it's, you know, then these things, there's, these are books we're trying to cover in a three minute chat. So, or a few minutes chat. So it's, it's, it can be tough to kind of go through the, the detail, but yeah, I mean, mostly I'd agree with the summary of Kant there. The one thing that I would like to maybe come back to at some point is we can say like, well, you could do a similar argument with utilitarianism. You could kind of have utilitarian principles to come up with rules and say, well, these are the rules that guide you. So it'd be interesting to see what you would think is the difference there in that. So you could come up with a rule like you know generally torture does not increase pleasure so torture is wrong that'd be my utilitarian kind of rule generating system i think it's different to what kant would say but it'd be interesting to see if you have a thought about that why couldn't you generate the rules with utilitarianism why does you know what, what's the advantage of being purely rational over a kind of a utilitarian based you know figuring out like the greatest good for the greatest numbers to generalize rules yeah so let's come to that and on the way, let's return to the murder. So if we if we said one rule is murder is bad, it, could we just go with kill, for example? Because kill is kind of a good one. Because killing as a rule does sound bad. You know, you could say a rule, one should not kill. And that could be, this is slightly easier for me to, to, to describe. And we can work up to murder from the killing. Um, so yeah, that's in, in, fine. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, if you start with a rule, you know, one should not kill, that's your rule, your system. It, there's an obligation never to violate that rule, so that's that's the the, the first thing. In a, certainly, in a, in a you know, if you're taking this seriously as an ethical framework, um, you're saying, okay, well, one should never kill, um, and you have an obligation not to do that, um, pretty much under any circumstances. Now, then you could think of something like if someone was in a lot of pain, if someone really, really, you know, wanted to end their life, maybe something along the kind of like approaches like death death with dignity in that where you know if someone is just in too much pain the moral decision can be judged to be well we should let people not just soldier on with incredible amounts of pain but give people especially if they can make that decision if they have their faculties the choice to 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 relieve themselves of that pain in that case then the person who is assisting there in in that deontological system of you can't kill as a rule you're gonna you're gonna hit the, the point where you you can't do that. So you, you may have to look at someone and let someone exist and continue to exist against their wishes in tremendous amounts of pain. Some people would say that that isn't ethical, and that's just on the you should not kill rule. We can make the jump from kill to murder, but if you want to come back in the kill stuff, I think there's there's two parts there which are kind of interesting. So one is this idea of action versus inaction. 
because you'd be actively killing the person and your inaction would would just lead to them suffering and it's very hard to say how much responsibility people would have in action you know that has to be quite well defined um on the killing one i would have gone with an example of um killing one person to save five if one person's going to try and kill five people should you intervene and kill that one person if you had the opportunity because for me that feels like the inaction there is actually leading to a greater like a measurably greater loss of life directly whereas in your example i think it's still a good example of, of a dilemma but i think there's a, there's lots of other factors involved you would have to know a lot of the details about the case basically whereas i feel like the one to say five example is like it it's to me at least it feels a more justified case of you would potentially agree that killing the one to say five people would be good but killing is wrong in under the rule based system so you're you know you're allowing five to die i think that the one to say five the, the, the one thing with that example it immediately sounds like a utilitarian situation because <laughs> you've got numbers floating around and you bring in some of that thinking around you know the numbers game that which which isn't the case you, you know the, the rule can still stand I've heard the action versus inaction thing. I'd like to come to that first. I'm not convinced that there's even a distinction between them. Yes, you know, in cases where if you are pulling the trigger or something like that, there is a different, there's a difference psychologically as you act. I don't think that inaction, inaction is its own form of action because it's still a choice and it's a choice to do nothing. And really, we're just talking about if the reason you're not doing something that, you know, you, you believe is the right thing to do, maybe it's that you lack courage or lack the bravery or you won't be able to live with the decision. But for something that you you think is right, and if you see wrong going on, inaction kind of merges a little bit into action for me. But even, even if you take a step back, I think the difference between action and, in, and inaction is if we are looking at, say, we're playing a sport we're playing baseball. I'm trying to think of a sport we both know because I know no Irish sports. And I don't know what English sports you know. So we'll play baseball. Yeah. I'm on the fielding team and I don't catch the ball that's kind of hit to me. It's like, okay, so none of my team caught the ball either. But you would feel the responsibility if the ball was hit to me that it's I was the one who didn't catch it. So the inaction on the other part there is how do you kind of define when the action or the inaction is kind of applicable? Because if we had our example of like killing one person to save five or those five will die and I did kill that person, does that mean that you're not killing them is an inaction and that you're somehow morally responsible? You know, if it was a case that killing the one was actually correct, was your inaction, are you morally reprehensible for not killing that one person? And equally, how far out do you get this bubble of, of people not acting? So I think a very useful model in any of these things or an approach is Daniel Dennett talks about it a lot with kind of free will things, which we, we certainly won't get bogged down in today or talk about at all. But he does talk about degrees of freedom and he uses it in a different different sense for different reasons. But I think it's nice to parachute in here. If we take the baseball players, the degrees of freedom that the outfield players not near the ball had to successfully catch the ball is let's say zero, it's, it's probably by laws of physics zero. Whereas the person who was near it, if I've got the example correct, they did have a degree of freedom to, to catch the ball. And onlookers will judge them to have not caught the ball when they did have a degree of freedom to do that, whereas other people didn't. Is, is that example correct? Or have I? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's the issue is, is that kind of 
you know, you do judge the person to have not caught it versus all the other fielders who also didn't catch it, but you don't hold them responsible. But I think I was just using that as like a, a trivial example, but it, I feel that, that you can very easily get down a slippery slope. If you're saying inaction is a form of action, and then you have a situation where there are multiple people where action is the good course and inaction is the bad course, then if there's only opportunity for one person to act, are those other people being immoral? I think, And I think that would be a problem. So I think one of the best examples that pretty much anyone can resonate with, which kind of falls between the baseball team not doing so well and uh, who do we have, the, 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 the massacre shooting. If we take an example of someone at work, right, and you, you know that they don't deserve to get massively given out by their boss or someone in a position of authority. But you do nothing to intervene. You, you, you know, you could stand up for them. You could say something. But you know that if you did stand up, you know, in this situation for that person, it may negatively affect your career because then that boss, depending on their personality, temperament, psychological profile, they may then start to do the same thing to you in future days. So you kind of have a choice as to whether you want to, whether you want to intervene or not. And you have a degree of freedom to intervene. And inaction there feels culpable. Like, it does feel culpable. It does feel like a form of, of action, the action to stay silent. And I think that gets at the, the heart of the problem. And then if we take other problems which are more trivial, like the baseball, or we start sliding towards one like the whether it's right to shoot a person or not, which is a much more grave problem, a serious problem, we're still kind of in that situation, that kind of middle ground where it's easy for us to think about inaction as a form of, of silent action and a problem in that respect. So I think inaction can definitely be seen as, as in many cases, just as, as bad and as culpable and can feel like that. It doesn't always feel like that, but I think it's always there in the background that that is what inaction is. And it's just hmm, it's a bit of an excuse to, to give inaction a pass. <laughs> I mean, I feel that we, sh we should formalize this into the trolley problem then because we now seem to have got to this. Essentially, that is what we're dancing around. We have. It's a good time to go to that. And just, just to recap where we're at. So we started talking about utilitarianism. This is all the calculus and all the, the numbers of the group. And we've moved to deontology. We've talked about, you know, what, what can be considered right and wrong on a kind of a rule. And now we're going to go to the trolley problem, which is... I suppose, is it classically a utilitarianism type one? It maybe applies to all of them, I don't know. Okay, so as it happens, at this point, Simon had already left the building, but like a philosophical boomerang, he will return. Tune in for part two, same bat time, same bat channel, when we'll cover virtue ethics, so you can add that to your philosophical utility belt. Mm -hmm.